Good morning. It's good to see you here. Um, it really has been a very busy week at Fellowship with uh, Vacation Bible School. And I have one clarification I want to make. Um, one of my roles this week uh, was at the end of the day, I handed out candy to the kids. I'm trying to get them to, you know, feel good about their uh, the teaching pastor. And so I was handing out, out candy all week long, different kinds of candy. One of the kids went home and um, reported to their dad, uh, Mr. Ken was handing out liquor. It was licorice, okay? So whatever the rumors are that may be going around about Mr. Ken passing out liquor, it was licorice. So Jack, that's yours, if you'll share. Okay, good. Um, it was a great week. We had a great time. Uh, the kids learning all about uh, Daniel in Babylon and his three friends. It was a good thing. I'll hit Daniel in a few weeks, but today we're going to be looking at the book of Isaiah. We've kind of made it in our survey through the Bible, uh, preparing you for your time in the scriptures yourself. Uh, we have had um, messages on the historical books, on the poetic books. Now uh, we're moving into 17 messages on the prophetic books, five major prophets, 12 minor prophets. And, and Isaiah is really um, a paradigm of, of all the prophets to come. Uh, maybe not the first prophet to, to write, but certainly at the head of the collection, because um, he really provides the pattern and really an orientation for all of the other prophetic books. Um, I gave you an orientation uh, to that last week with a, a number of different points. I just want to review a small part of that this week. And I want to remind you that these prophets are more preaching than predicting. They're more preachers than predictors. Yes, there are times when they are looking and they are prophesying about the future, but uh, most of what they're doing is they're preaching messages. Literally, with Isaiah, you can figure out at certain points that he's preaching at the festival um, of tabernacles. He's preaching at Passover. You can tell when he is preaching and he's delivering these messages because of the themes he's wrapping into these messages. Um, so this is preaching um, more than it's predicting. Now, there are some predictions, and that fits into the preaching, though. Um, these guys are covenant enforcers. They are the ones who are saying, you made a covenant with God, and you covenanted to be faithful to him, and you have not been your guilty, and God has made a covenant with you, and he will discipline you for your disobedience. But God is also going to be faithful to his covenant to fulfill ultimately all of his promises. And so they're, they're reminding people of the covenants that have been made. And particularly, if you want to see what's going on in all of the prophets, read Leviticus 26. That's what they're preaching. The passage that, that really orients every single one of the 17 prophets is Leviticus chapter 26. It's the Palestinian covenant. These guys are interpreting history. They are interpreting the past history and the covenants that have been made with Israel. They're, they're interpreting their present history. Here's what's going on with you, and here's what's going to happen in the future. And in doing that, these guys are often called seers because they see so clearly what the scriptures have already said. They see what's going on in the society around them. They see it, and they can see into the future. And all of that as a part of God's plan and how God's people fit into that. So remember, these guys are preaching messages. They're calling people to be faithful to the covenants. They're reminding people that God will be faithful to his covenant. And, and they are seeing the whole span of history, past, present, and future, as how God sees it unfolding. Um, that's what's going on. Um, this is Isaiah. Um, Isaiah is going to deliver a, a very hopeful message, ultimately, 
that, that is going to tell us that salvation comes by the servant of the Lord. Um, the picture that's on the screen there is from the Sistine Chapel, uh, Michelangelo's uh, painting. And up on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, um, the prophets are there. And I'm going to incorporate them into the chart that you've got out at the Connection Center, um, but um, into the messages as well. Um, because these prophets are really paradigmatic in what God is doing in his program. I've got a few other resources out at the Connection Center, and I just want to highlight them. The first one um, is really an integration. Um, what I've done is I've put together the kings of the northern kingdom in Israel and the prophets that are associated with them, the kings of the southern kingdom and the prophets that are associated with them, both the writing and non-writing prophets. The non-writing prophets like Elijah and Elijah have them in there marked off. Um, Huldah, Micaiah, some of these guys who don't have books, they're in there. But the guys who write books are in there as well. And then there's one other uh, section down there that is written, um, uh, that is showing you the exilic and the post-exilic group. Um, Those who who are prophesying while they're in exile and then when they come back to exile. Um, There's another one, and this is not for everybody, but if you're really into the historical background kind of stuff, and you, and you want to know, okay, what was going on with the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians? Uh, there's a summary by Alan Ross, two pages, that gives you the historical background, not only of Isaiah, but really this whole prophetic time period, and kind of shows you the movement of history from the Assyrian dominance being pushed out by the Babylonians and the Babylonians pushed out by the Persians. And that really covers that prophetic period. And then I have something, um, it's just a summary of the book of Isaiah. Um, Isaiah is so important and so critical. You're going to see that in a number of different ways. Um, I, I'm giving you a summary of this message written by Alan Ross um, because Isaiah is so critical. In fact, it is so critical that um, in 1946, when the caves in Qumran were discovered and they found what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls on the, on the northern shore of the Dead Sea in what's now the West Bank, um, some caves were uncovered. And in those caves there were a number of scrolls that had been preserved by what we know as the, the Qumran community. They were Essenes who lived uh, a couple hundred years before Jesus and maybe up to a hundred years after Jesus. And these Essenes were people who were so frustrated with the conflict between the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Jerusalem and them fighting over power. The Essenes went into the wilderness. They went into the desert and they built these communes out in the desert. And out there... What they did is they studied the scriptures, and in particular, they studied, they loved Isaiah, the Psalms, and Daniel, because there's copies of those all over. In one of the caves, um, they found an entire manuscript of Isaiah. That's it. That's the, along the bottom there. That's all of the printing, because Isaiah was so foundational for them. And they knew they could do the calculations in Daniel, by the way. That's why they're out in the desert. And because you'll see in a passage I read today in Isaiah, Isaiah tells them that the way of the Lord is going to be prepared in the wilderness. So they went out into the wilderness. They're studying Daniel, Isaiah, and the Psalms, waiting for the Lord to come. Unfortunately, he came and they didn't recognize him. But these books are foundational. They're formative. And Isaiah sits right at the beginning of it. Isaiah starts off like many of the prophets. It starts off with identifying who he is and when he's writing. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So just to highlight, Isaiah is preaching to the southern kingdom. He's going to say some things about the northern kingdom of Israel. In fact, he's going to say they're going to be judged and they get judged. But his message is to Judah 
and in particular within that southern kingdom of Judah, Jerusalem, and probably even more particularly the royal court of which Isaiah may have been a part. Um, And he is going to prophesy during the reigns of Uzziah, good king, Jotham, bad king, Ahaz, really bad king, Hezekiah, good king, goes bad, turns it around. Um, So there's a lot of changes that are going on during Isaiah's life. And he's going to deliver these messages um, that are showing how the covenant is being enforced for them right now and how it has some implications that move into the future. So now we're going to move pretty quickly into our outline. I usually talk a lot more before I get to this part of the the message. Uh, This this idea of who's writing, when is he writing, where are they, and, and why is this put together here? Who composed Isaiah? Isaiah was a prophet who delivered many messages during his 60 years of ministry. And in fact, this is really a collection of his messages. Um, It is possible and even likely that he was a part of the royal family, but not a direct heir to the throne. These messages were gathered and organized, likely by the prophet himself, sometime late in his life before he was put to death, uh, perhaps by one of his relatives, King Manasseh. Um, he's, He's preaching these messages through his life, and at some point it looks pretty clear that he's gathered them and organized them. Um, it's a little bit like my messages. If you want to see the historical record of Ken's 24 messages or 24 years of preaching, um, it's under a, a set of stairs over in the other building. There's all these notebooks with all my messages in there. It's, it's almost like Isaiah's done that. Under, but his were inspired by the Holy Spirit, mine or not. Uh, prepared well, but not inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's collecting all of those messages and putting them together. They were originally delivered to the nation in the south, but they were collected and preserved finally for the nation once it went into exile. The original audience of Isaiah's messages when they were preached were the residents in Judah, especially Jerusalem, and even more pointedly, the royal family. Isaiah has clear access to the royal family. In fact, it's his work with Hezekiah that leads to um, the revival. He's directly connected with Hezekiah. The entire collection of messages was compiled as a way to encourage and challenge the nation in exile. They're written to the nation before they go into exile, but they're collected together and they provide a record for that nation. Once they had been judged, the northern kingdom of Israel had been judged by the Assyrians. The Babylonians pushed the Assyrians out and now the Babylonians, due to some major mistakes that Hezekiah makes, the Babylonians come down and take the southern kingdom captive. But it's written to encourage that exilic community to return to the Lord, uh, to the land of promise and be faithful to the Lord because God had always been faithful to them. So he's, he's preaching the covenant and he's saying, you haven't been faithful, but God will be faithful. And that's maybe one way you can outline the book. The, their unfaithfulness is the first half of the book and God's faithfulness is the second half of the book. In fact, they're so dramatically different that a lot of people feel like maybe there are two Isaiahs. Because one message is a message of judgment, one message is a message of comfort. There's not really two Isaiahs, there's just two audiences and two different things he's trying to accomplish. Some people even say that there's a third Isaiah because there's a historical transition in the middle that is really just the story of this one King Hezekiah. The reality is there's one Isaiah who's writing this message with a couple of different purposes as he moves along. And all of that is guided by the events in history. And this is going to be true for all of the prophets. Gary Smith says it this way. Each prophetic message, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, all of them, 
Each prophetic message was impacted by what was happening in the life of the prophet and his audience. Both the prophet and his audience were tied to the political, social, and religious setting of their time. The message is always the same. Obedience will bring blessing. Disobedience will bring discipline. And repentance will bring restoration. That's their message. But the political, social, historical setting is going to provide some really interesting perspectives on all of that. And little by little, I want you to see how how Isaiah is doing this, because there's a, there's a historical move in Isaiah, but there's also some theological moves in Isaiah. So why, why is this here? Isaiah is easy to, or when was this written? Isaiah is easy to date because of the references to the kings in Judah, as well as kings from surrounding countries. Isaiah's ministry started when he was a young man in 742 BC, when Uzziah died after a long and prosperous reign and continued until his own death, likely around 680, after the Babylonian army destroyed Jerusalem and took Daniel and Ezekiel captive back to Babylon. Uh, The Babylonian army comes in three different ways, 605, 596, 598, 586. The Babylonians take them away in three different waves. And Isaiah is a witness to all of this stuff. He's seeing that. But a long, long ministry that he has. Um, I'm, I'm going to read something that is, it's, it's reading, I understand. But you're going to hear the flow of kind of Isaiah's ministry and, and what's going on and how he's responding to it. Gary Smith summarizes this way. The ministry of the prophet Isaiah extended from the reign of Uzziah to that of Hezekiah from 755 to 685. King Uzziah's reign in Judah was characterized by a strong army, great wealth, and pride. The prophet Isaiah spoke out against the proud and wealthy, indicating that a devastating war was coming. There was a lot of prosperity during Uzziah's reign, Um, very much like our nation now. Lots of prosperity, lots of pride, a lot of good things going on. But Isaiah shows up and says, you're depending on yourself and there's problems ahead. When Uzziah died, Isaiah's ministry was given a new direction because the new king, Ahaz, was a worshiper of Baal who hardened his heart against anything God said. Ahaz even refused to trust God when he was attacked by Pekah of Israel, the northern kingdom that was reprobate and they had no good kings. They are going to make an alliance um, with the Syrians and they're going to attack the southern kingdom. And and, um, Ahaz is not going to... um, even trust the Lord for that. Here's what he does. Instead, Ahaz depended on the Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser. I love these names, Tiglath-Pileser. If you're having children, Tiglath-Pileser. Take it off your list, by the way. He's evil, okay? But man, Tiglath-Pileser, Supiuliumus, these people knew how to name people. Um, he makes a, 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 and he's the third, by the way, Tiglath-Pileser, the third. Um, but Judah became a vassal of the Assyrians after they rescued Ahaz from his uh, two enemies, Syria and Israel. Everything's going really, really well under Uzziah. Um, Ahaz comes in, um, there's a war threatening, and he, rather than trusting the Lord, makes makes a a, a treaty with the Assyrians who now dominate them. Some years later, King Hezekiah began a reform movement, probably coached by Isaiah. So he cleansed the temple and refused to pay tribute to the Assyrians. He basically, um, Ahaz got him in NATO, And Hezekiah came and said, I'm not paying the dues anymore. 
well, this causes trouble. Because of this rebellion, Judah was attacked by the Assyrian king Sennacherib, and initially Hezekiah made treaties with Egypt and Babylon to counter the Assyrians. Unfortunately, what he did when he made the treaty with the Babylonians, he showed them the treasures in the temple, which is why later on the Babylonians come back to conquer them to get the treasures in the temple that he just sold them. But later he trusts God, so God sent an angel to kill 150,000, 185,000 Assyrian troops stationed around Jerusalem. Throughout this period, Isaiah challenged Hezekiah to trust God because the foreign nations and their gods amounted to nothing in the eyes of God. That basically is the first half of the book, the first 39 chapters. It's the historical record of all of this preaching, all of these kings changing, and, and Isaiah all along saying, if you'll just obey God, he'll bless you. You're not obeying God, he's going to discipline you. But little hints of, but there's going to be a time when God's people return and God will bless them in a great way. So why was Isaiah written? Isaiah was written to provide a clear connection between the justice of God, that's really the focus of chapters 1 through 39, and the grace of God, that's chapters 40 to 46. Sin and salvation are central to God's plan to restore us back into a relationship with himself. Do you see why this is such a foundational book? It deals with sin and it deals with salvation. And particularly in the salvation part, what's going to be highlighted is the suffering servant and his work um, to, to be a substitute for our sins. The prince of peace who's going to bring a rule and a reign of peace. Um, all of this woven together, kind of alluding in and out to the first coming of Christ to redeem the second coming of Christ to come back and to rule. And Isaiah puts all of this together. God's serious about sin, but he wants to provide salvation. Isaiah preached to the pre-exilic community, but the final form of the book was likely intended for the exilic community to paint this big picture of what God is doing in history, dealing with sin in a just manner and providing for salvation out of his abundant grace. He was going to save the nation, but even more than that, he's going to save all people who will turn to God and turn to the suffering servant and place their faith in the Prince of Peace. And this is foundational for all of Scripture, but hugely foundational for the New Testament. Danny Hayes says this, the New Testament, especially the Gospels in the book of Revelation, leans heavily on the prophecies of Isaiah for understanding Jesus. Um, Second only to the Psalms, Isaiah is quoted the most in the New Testament. And if you really want to understand Revelation, if you're that person, you're just like, oh, Revelation's my deal. If, here's, the, here's the summary of Revelation. God wins. Okay? But if you want to go deeper than that, you really have to understand Daniel, Isaiah, and Zechariah. If you understand those three books as a background, Revelation makes a whole lot more sense. But Isaiah becomes foundational. I'm going to show you even Jesus himself quotes Isaiah and, and applies it to himself. Um, the book of Isaiah is quoted to or alluded to between 85 and 100 times in the New Testament. And, and I can't nail it down because some of the allusions are very, very um, slight allusions. Um, in the upper room, Jesus is going to say many. And that many is probably an allusion to Isaiah 53. But we can't be sure. The word many, I mean, you could use the word many. But it sure seems like he's alluding to, to he, he's going to bring many into connection with the Lord. So what's going on in this book? Let's, let's boil this down. I've given you some historical background, uh, worked with it. Um, there's really two sections, 
Bob Chisholm says this, the first literary unit, chapters 1 through 39, reflects for the most part the concerns and political realities of Isaiah's time. The book's second major literary unit anticipates the exile and addresses his concern for the future exiles in Babylon. The first half is people in Isaiah's time, you're going to be judged, and it's largely a message of judgment. The second half of the book is saying you have been judged, but there is still hope because God still has a plan. And in the center of that plan is the servant of the Lord, who's the prince of peace. The book is organized in really two sections. Almost everybody organizes it this way. There's the book of judgment, and it starts out with judgment on the nation and then judgment on all the other nations. And then there's the book of comfort. Once they're judged and they're away. Um, the chart I have out of the Connection Center makes a little bit better sense of this. Um, the book of judgment is the first 39 chapters of the book. Um, I have a little graphic in there that's a stump with a, a, a shoot coming out of it. That's the image that Isaiah uses to say Israel is like a tree and it's going to be cut down to a stump. But out of that stump will come this little shoot that's Jesus. All of that is the first half of the book that's judgment. The second half of the book is the book of comfort. God's judged you, but he's not finished. He's got a big plan. Um, There's a really interesting dynamic here, too. There are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, okay, 66 chapters. The first section is 39 chapters long, and the second section is 27 chapters long. Remind you of anything? That's your Bible. 66 books in the Bible. 39 in the Old Testament that's largely judgment and and preparation, and then 27 books in the New Testament that is largely, this is what Jesus does. Isaiah is kind of a mini mini Bible, (laughs) and it's it's a way you can can remember how it all fits together. And in the middle is this section that's the Hezekiah story, And it's the transition because at the beginning of the book, the Assyrians are on the move and the Assyrians are dominating and the Assyrians are even taking the northern kingdom captive. Isaiah's watching all of that happen. And then under Hezekiah, the Babylonians are on the move. The Assyrians are are threatening Hezekiah, but Hezekiah makes an, uh, an alliance with the Babylonians to stave them off. Isaiah convinces him, get out of that treaty and just trust the Lord and God delivers them. But then what happens is the Babylonians do take over and because Hezekiah showed them the temple treasures, they come and they take them captive and they take them away into Babylon. And that second half of while the people are in Babylon is what's going on here. But the theological move here is that the first half is this judgment message um, in which um, people are getting the terms of the covenant enforced on them. In the second half, the message is much more a comfort message because the terms of the covenant are still being enforced, and that is God doesn't give up on his people and God doesn't give up on his plan. And even though the people have blown it, God's going to fix all of this with his suffering servant, who's the prince of peace. So what's the message? This is my summary at the bottom of the chart at the Connection Center. In a series of visions spanning nearly 60 years from 742 B.C. to 680 B.C., during the Assyrian conquest of Israel in the north, the Babylonian rise to power and threat to Judah in the south. 
Isaiah revealed that judgment would come on the nation because of a failure to keep the covenant, but promised that God would deliver the nation through a messianic deliverer, the servant of the Lord, who's the Prince of Peace, who would bring in a time of kingdom blessing characterized by peace. And he did all of this in order to encourage the pre-exilic people to turn back to God and to live holy lives and faithfulness to the covenant and the exilic people to return to the land from Babylon as God's covenant people. God's not finished with you, so still keep doing what he has asked you to do. And, and this is a message of judgment. I, I, there's so much that's in this book. I'm just going to now give you some samplings through the book, okay? Chapter 1, here's some message of judgment. Listen to this. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its, own, its, its owner's manager, but Israel doesn't know. My people do not understand. You're more stubborn than a donkey. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. There's 39 chapters of that. And it's going to be addressed to Israel, but it's also going to be addressed to the surrounding nations. Because even though God is going to use these nations to judge, he's going to judge them as well. It's kind of the Habakkuk story that we'll get to. But interspersed, there are these little bits of hope, little seasonings of hope. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness, but then right back to judgment. But rebels and sinners will be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. (laughs) Lots of judgment. But as you're reading those 39 chapters, there's going to be little seasons of hope along the way. The message um, really is is for everybody. You can see all of the the nations that are judged here. Um, And the judgment on the nations, they they are so fascinating. There there are these amazing word plays that take place in the prophets. I'm going to get to them when I have a little bit more time, perhaps in Micah, to show you some of the word plays that take place as these prophets... um, use the names of the countries and they use the names of the cities to, to twist and show the, the judgment that is coming. It's, it's actually fascinating what they're doing. But there is a message of hope. Listen to this longer section from Isaiah chapter 2. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. The Lord will, the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. There's hope. There's all this battle and judgment going on, but there's coming a time when you'll put down your battle tools and you'll use them for harvesting. That's the hope that we have. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is the message of Messiah. It's a message of hope, but the primary message is that the Lord's going to give you a sign and a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and he'll be called Emmanuel. Christmas message, isn't it? But remember what I talked to you about last week, that the prophets, when they prophesy, they will prophesy things And something related to that prophecy will happen in the near future, and the fulfillment is in the far future. Um, I've likened this in the past to skipping stones. It's like the prophet takes this prophecy, and he'll skip the stone, and something will happen right in front of them, so you know you can trust him, but the real fulfillment is farther out. 
This prophecy is in Isaiah 7. In Isaiah 8, a young maiden unexpectedly does give birth to a child. It's not the full, the full fulfillment, but it's kind of the shadow fulfillment of what's going to be true, and the New Testament makes clear the real fulfillment is when Mary conceived and gave birth to Jesus Christ. But this is the beginning of these prophetic moves where prophecies are made and there's a little fulfillment and then the big one in Jesus. And sometimes it skips even more than that. It'll skip to the first coming where Jesus will come back to redeem. And then there's another skip where he'll come back to rule, where all the nations will gather before him and they'll know the name of the Lord. Um, Here's another message of Messiah, Christmas time. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called this amazing counsel giver. Uh, he's mighty God. He's the father of eternity. He's the prince that produces peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it in justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This book is saying God is going to be faithful, and a lot of that faithfulness is he's got a plan for Messiah. And the Messiah message is going to show up over and over again. Here's another one from um, Isaiah 40. This is really the turn. After you get 39 chapters of mostly judgment, now you're going to get the turn. Here's the beginning of the turn. And listen to why the Essenes were in the desert. Okay? Comfort, comfort my people, says God, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and her sin has been paid for, that she has received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain uh, made low. And, and by the way, all the hills are going to sing high and the valley is going to sing low and we'll all sing harmony. Um, <laughs> the rough ground uh, shall become level, the rugged place is a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Um, This Messiah message is coming again and again. And in the center of that, really the center of the second half of the book, in the center of the servant songs, is Isaiah 53. It's actually the last part of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. You're familiar with this. Listen as I just read through it. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. But just as many were astonished at you, my people, people didn't think Israel was much, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus, he will startle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had been told, they will see. And what has not been heard, they will understand. When Jesus comes, it's shocking. Nobody expected him to be the savior like this, born in a manger, dying on a cross. It was shocking. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot out of that stump. And like a root out of parched ground, he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. He wasn't recognized. People didn't recognize him. Even the people who were studying Isaiah out in the desert, they didn't recognize he's the one. 
Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. We thought he got what he deserved, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourgings we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned into his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. His suffering was vicarious. It wasn't for him. It was for us. It was in our place. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. He was innocent. He suffered for us and he was innocent. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. It was accepted for us silently in our place and accepted by God. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant will justify the many. That's the reference that is used in the upper room. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot with him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of many, and he interceded for the transgressors. It was effective. It was efficacious. And Jesus quotes Isaiah himself. He knows all of this is about him. Jesus went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue. And was his custom, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. And he reads Isaiah chapter 61 and part of 58. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the news, good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by telling him, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And if you read Isaiah 61 closely, what you'll realize is he stopped reading after the first coming stuff, and he doesn't read the stuff that applies to the second coming. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew this book really, really well. And other things are in Isaiah too. I could go on and on and on, but I just want to show you this one. Um, the new heavens and the new earth, that's Revelation, right? No, that's Isaiah. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Isaiah is this paradigmatic book. <laughs> um, it's so important. It's so foundational. So what does that leave us with? What are some convictions that we can leave here with? So what? Okay. It's a big book. It's like the Bible. 66 chapters, 39 of judgment, 29 of hope. So what? Well, here's how this fits into the big plan. It really is an overview of God's plan for justice and salvation. This is the deal. God is going to judge sin, but salvation comes through a suffering servant who brings peace by suffering in our place. When you place your trust in him, not the Assyrians, not the Babylonians, not the Egyptians, not yourself. 
It's a clear message of God's plan to bring salvation through a Messiah. Jesus is the servant of the Lord. Interestingly, Isaiah is in the book. Isaiah is the servant of the Lord. The nation is the servant of the Lord. We are all servants of the Lord, but Jesus is the servant of the Lord who brings salvation. And we get to be a part of that family and a part of bringing that message when we're servants of the Lord. And Isaiah is a paradigm of the prophetic messages. He's, he's the first in the line of, of, of guys who are going to say the same thing over and over again, but with little uniquenesses and twists. So what should we believe? God will judge unbelievers for their sin. And apart from Christ, they will be judged and be separated from God for all eternity in hell. But God will also discipline his own people. And you won't be able to enjoy the prosperity that comes under your, your Uzziah. <laughs> You'll be sent away in, to Babylon. God has always had a plan to bring salvation through his anointed servant. Um, this has always been God's plan. From, from Genesis to Revelation, God's got this plan working itself out. And salvation comes only through Jesus Christ, who fulfills all of Isaiah's prophecies. The first coming is the first skip of the rock. All of the rest of the stuff is the second skip. How should we behave? Well, it's pretty simple. Trust Jesus, the servant of the Lord, and the Prince of Peace for salvation. Trust him. It's the only place you can find salvation. It won't be in your own horses or chariots or alliances you make. It's only in the servant of the Lord, the Prince of Peace. And I want to encourage you to engage in the program of the Prince of Peace. Get involved in what he's doing. And anticipate the final finished work of Messiah. Because even in that second half of the book, not all of it has been fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. He's coming back. And we should be working hard until he does. Which leads me to our next steps. I think there's two things I want to encourage you to do. Read your Bible in light of the promise of Messiah. From beginning to end, Messiah is, is the program. It doesn't immediately get to Jesus, but ultimately everything leads to Jesus. And I went over it time and time again this week, whether I would leave it like this. <laughs> but I left the second next step here. Reorient your entire life to be a part of the program of peace. And I really mean that. Reorient your entire life. What else are you doing in your life? Enjoying life in the exile? Making alliances with Babylon? Are you comfortable in Babylon? <laughs> Under the oppression? Or, or are you living for something bigger, something that lasts into eternity? Reorient your entire life. What are you doing? And I know a lot of people are doing good things. You, you served in... in um, in vacation Bible school, I get it. You, you're doing some really good things. Great. Is your life about advancing the program of the Prince of Peace? When Jesus ascended, that rock skipped, he's coming back. When he ascended, he said, here's the thing I'm leaving you here to do. Make disciples of all nations. Are you doing it? Or are you just counting your horses? Are you, are you involved in, 
in being a witness in your Jerusalem across the room, in your Judea and Samaria across the street, to the uttermost parts of the earth? Are you, are you involved in the program that God is all about? And if not, you're going to be put on the sideline. And trust me, you're not going to enjoy it. All of the things you're trying to enjoy won't be enjoyable. But being involved in the program that God has been executing from the very beginning of creation until the consummation of history, getting yourself involved in that, that's fun. We get to do that. Get involved. Father, thank you for the clear, (laughs) sometimes harsh, but comforting message of Isaiah. Lord, I thank you that this book is in Scripture and it it heads off up the prophets and, and sets the stage. And Father, I am so grateful that your Son, Jesus Christ, is the fulfillment of all of those prophecies. And that we get to serve him and participate in taking his message around the world, his message of salvation, his message of substitutionary suffering for us. Help us to love doing that. Thank you for inviting us into this program. Amen.